Acts chapter 1. Wow, PT, why are you in Acts chapter 1? Well, if you're a regular member here, you know we've been going through the gospel of Luke, and um, we're going to return to the gospel of Luke next week. Um, But Acts chapter 1 is a a message uh, today that God has laid on my heart. Um, and, uh, and I just want to talk to you guys and look at a biblically-based assessment of where we are right now as a church, okay? And, and I want to be able to discern with you where God has us as a church and look at biblically what's going on here. Now, when I say where we're at as a church, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. Let me define my terms, Okay. When I talk about church, I'm not talking about the organization of the church. I'm talking about the people, the family. That's what comprise the church. I love this quote. It's been said, church is not an organization that you join. It's a family where you belong. It is a home where you are loved. It is a hospital where you find healing. Now, that's the definition of my term. When I say I want to talk to you about us as a church, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about family, man. I'm talking about what God is doing. Where, where, where are we going as a family of believers? And what would God have you and I to do uh, as a family of believers? So let me give you the outline right up front. The purpose of our study today is to gain a biblical perspective of, number one, what the Bible says is the purpose of the church. Number two, how the Bible describes the practice of, of the church, and then thirdly and finally, how the Bible says that the members, you and me together, we are to participate in the church. And notice the emphasis there, what the Bible says, not what Pastor Ted says, this is not a slick sales pitch, this is not some gimmicky strategy that I'm going to present to you about, you know, my, my great plans for the church, nothing like that. I want to look at what the Bible says that we are as a church, who we're to be, and what's our purpose, what's our practice, how do we participate in that. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And in order for us to look at what God's doing and where he's taking us, we got to start with the you are here, okay? Maybe you've gone to the mall and you go to a map, you're looking for a particular place and you find the map, and inevitably what you're looking for after you find your place, you want to find the you are here. Right years ago, I used to work uh, driving an ambulance in Los Angeles. I was an 18 year old kid, and I grew up in Redondo Beach. I did not know L.A. And then all of a sudden, man, I had to get somewhere in a hurry. They would call me on the radio, say, "Lights and sirens, man, you got to go to this place." And I'll date myself. It was before the days of GPS. We had what was known as a Thomas Brothers map guide. Anybody remember Thomas Brothers? And so here's the cool thing about the Thomas Brothers: you can look up anywhere, you can find the address there but you can't always figure out where you're at. And sometimes I would find an address and i go, great, that's where it is. How do I get there? Because I don't know where I am. So I would have to look up where I was and then I would have to look up where the call was and then I would have to plot a course. So let me give you the you are here, okay? As, as far as, you know, where are we as a church? As a church, we have grown 40% in the last six months. 40%, Right? Wow, that's, that's sobering. Last week, we ministered to 2,800 people in our four Easter services. Now, when I say that we've grown by 48% or 40%, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about our Easter attendance. That, that number's skewed, okay? 
because, um, you know, you get all the CEOs, all the Christmas and Easter onlys who come out. Um, they, don't, they don't comprise the membership of our church. I'm just talking about the 40% reflects our regular average weekly attendance, okay? But last week, we ministered to 2,800 people. We baptized 35 people last week. What a joy to see people being baptized and making that public declaration of faith. We saw roughly 80 people of all ages make professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ last week, right? We can clap for that too. And I say people of all ages. We had kids in our children's ministry as young as five years old making professions of faith in Christ. And we had here in our main sanctuary people of all ages, including a 72-year-old avowed atheist who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. This beautiful lady, her family has been praying for her for 28 years that she would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. My wife Brenda had the privilege of praying with her and she in tears and she said, I'm done living in between two worlds. And and she has received Christ and just with joy, a new creation Christ. You could see it all over her face. And so beautiful to see that. Let me just say, we've come a long way from the 12 people or so that started this church in my living room. God has done exceedingly and abundantly beyond we can ask or think. And along the way, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people make professions of faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen marriages healed. We have seen lives change. We get testimonies all the time, people telling us regularly, and it's always such an encouragement for me. When they'll send a card or they'll pull us aside, my wife or I, they will just share what God has done, and that's the point. It's not what PT has done. It's not what, what an individual has done. It's not what an organization has done. It's what God has done in their lives here, and we're so grateful. Every time we hear those wonderful stories, we've seen people delivered from drugs, people delivered from alcohol. We've, we've seen children by the hundreds come to know the Lord as their Lord and Savior. We've watched you know, our VBS and our Awana ministry, and we see kids memorizing scripture, and we see people being raised up as leaders in the church. We see people being raised up as pastors and elders and, and deacons. We, we, we raise up teachers of our, of our community groups and hosts to host them, and people discovering they're using their spiritual gifts. We're sending out missionaries. We're sending out church planters. And, and it just blows my mind. And here's what I want you to hear. Here's why that's good news. That's good news because it's biblical. And that's what I want to show you today. It's absolutely biblical. And I want you to understand that growth, guys, growth is good. Growth is good. And I want to prove that to you biblically. And not only do I want to prove that to you biblically, I need to prove that to you biblically. Here's why. I told you that in the last six months, we've grown by 40%. That's just our adults. You add kids into the mix, we as a church have grown by 52% in the last six months. God just pouring out and doing an awesome work. And inevitably, growth involves two things that aren't always perceived as good when you grow like that. Inevitably, when you have growth of our magnitude Number one, it's a little chaotic, and that's not always perceived as good. And number two, growth inevitably brings change, and everybody loves change, you know, right? And so whenever you have change, seasoned with a bit of chaos, people get nervous. People get nervous. And and recently, 
I've had a couple of conversations with some nervous people. I had a brother in the church. He, he came up to me. He said, you know, something seems off. It's not like it was. It's not like it used to be when we were small. And I said as lovingly as I could, you think? Right? You think that something is changed? I go, brother, look, nothing's off. This is, this is normal. This is biblical. But, you know, th- yeah, things change. Let me, let me put it in perspective. How many of you have kids? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you have kids? All right, so let me ask you a question. When, when you and your spouse decided to have children, did the, di- <clears throat> hello, did the dynamics of your house change? Yes or no? When you added children, I said that to first service, everybody just started laughing. You know, did the dynamics change? Of course they changed, right? And listen, if the dynamics in our homes change, <clears throat> when God adds kids to our <laughs> family, I'm choking on a cough drop up here. God help me. <clears throat> if the dynamics in our homes change when God add kids, adds kids to our families, shouldn't it, it should not surprise us at all when the dynamics in the house of God changes when he adds kids to his family here. It should not surprise us. Wow, something seems different. Yeah, it is different. And what we're going to do is we're going to look and see that we are not alone, okay, in this changing dynamic as God adds daily to the church. We're going to look at this first century church in the book of Acts, and we're going to see uh, just, gosh, growth, change, working through dynamics, it's all part and parcel with God's plan. So, so we'll start off, you take your notes, just jot down the first point. We're looking at what the Bible says is the purpose of the church, right? Jump in with me, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, the author of Acts is none other than Luke. We're reading the gospel that Luke wrote. He also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, really, it's the Acts of the Apostles, and it's a historical book, and we're so grateful that we have it because what it does is it, 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 it chronicles the growth, the birth and the growth of the church in the first century. And so this gives, it's so instructive for us as, a, as the church of, of Christ 2,000 years later because this, in many ways, we see a model and we see a pattern. And so... Luke, he's talking about his former account. He's talking about the gospel of Luke. And he says, in that account, and he's writing to some cat named Theophilus. It means lover of God. And so he says, hey, I told you in the gospel of Luke, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, began is the operative word. What does the word began imply? Anybody? Began? It's not done. Thank you, John. Yes, he's not done. Jesus started a work. 2,000 years ago, and then he passed the baton on his, to his disciples, and his disciples passed his, that baton on to other disciples, and it's gone on for 2,000 years, and now we have received this baton, and we continue the work that Jesus Christ began. And so he says, verse 2, he, he told, hey, I told you in Luke all about what Jesus began both to do and to teach until, verse 2, the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom 
of God. What Luke is describing here is this. We just celebrated last week Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know biblically that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he spent 40 days just pouring in some final words of exhortation and commissioning to his disciples and getting them ready. And then he ascended into heaven. We're going to see that next. And so being assembled, verse 4, together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is an amazing thing. These guys were the best trained, best prepared people of all of human history. They spent three and a half years with Jesus, and he said that, hey, you're not ready because you need the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I would just submit to you, if they needed this filling of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, to do the work that what God has called them to, to, to do, guys, you and me, we need that filling and that empowering of the Holy Spirit to do what God has commissioned and called us to do. And so, therefore, um, when they had come together, verse 6, they, the disciples, asked him, Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Now, if you've been with us as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, they're stuck on this. Every step, it's like, oh, now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And Peter, like, at one point, no, you're not. You're, they get, they stop talking about this dying stuff. You're coming to, to kick Rome out and to take over. And I got, I got a corner office prepared and I got a secretary I'm interviewing for. And, you know, we're going to rule and reign together with you. And Jesus just constantly with these guys. Like, no, no, I'm not coming as a conquering king. I'm coming as a suffering servant. Later I'll come as a suffering king. So now here he's died, buried, resurrected. He's with them. And they're like, cool, we got the suffering servant part out of the way. Now you're going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel. And he said to them, verse 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you, here's the key, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and he says, and to the ends of the earth. Matthew records this commissioning this way. In Matthew's gospel, he put on the screen for you. It tells us there, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's the key word of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Guys, this is the purpose of the church. Okay? The purpose of the church is to make disciples. When you walk into our foyer and you see that big sign on the wall that says leading people to know, love, and serve Jesus, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about making disciples. It starts with the assembling together of the saints here in the body of Christ and you and I getting built up and fed the word of God and getting our lives oriented according to the compass of God, which is so important because our feelings lie to us and our emotions lie to us and we see situations and circumstances that we think, oh, well, we should do this and it's always God's word that's going to rightly orient us and so we gather together and we do that. But having been equipped, with God's word, then we are supposed to mobilize. We are then supposed to go out and live missionally and share and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what the Lord is saying. Now, hold that thought, verse 9. 
So when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. This is angels now appearing to the disciples. And just to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second, you're standing there, Jesus bodily ascending up into heaven. That's quite a sight. You're like, wow, look at that, you know. And so they, these angels show up in verse 11. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Hey, he's going to be coming back as a conquering king, but you got work to do. And you guys are standing gawking right now and it's time to get to work, right? That's the idea. And so we continue. Uh, verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, half a mile or so, something like that. And when they had entered, <coughs> they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And now it lists all the disciples that were there. And it says in verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And the very next verse goes on to say there's about 120 of them gathered together at this point. And so here you go. You've got the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. Starts with 12 called men, and then it grows to 120 disciples, and then God hits the afterburner, and it explodes. Fast forward to chapter 2. Here they are, they're, they're, um, they're in this upper room, and they're waiting for the gift, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So you've got about 120 of them now, waiting like Jesus commanded, hey, Lord, pour out your spirit. And when the day, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's what's going on. You have at this time in Jerusalem, you've got all kinds of folks who have come there for the Passover feast, and now they're sticking around, they're waiting for the day of Pentecost, okay? So you got thousands and thousands of people from all over the place, a bunch of different regions, and they all speak different languages. And so what happens is, God has commissioned his disciples, wait for my Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's gonna empower you, and when he empowers you, you're gonna be my witnesses. So now they're empowered, and they go out, and they begin to be witness, to, to bear witness, to the glory of God, and they do so because God supernaturally enables them to speak, each one of them, different languages of the different people that are assimilated, okay? And we know what they speak because the people see this, and they're amazed, and some of the crowd goes, oh, these guys are drunk. They actually say that, but a lot of the other crowd are like, well, this is something supernatural. Like, here, these guys are from Galilee, and they're speaking my language, like I hear them in my native tongue, the whole dialect and, you know, everything, perfectly, and they're declaring the people testify the mighty, the wonderful works of God. These guys are preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, fast forward to verse uh, uh, 30, uh, verse 36, we'll, we'll, t- we'll do it there. So Peter, he steps up, 
all these guys, they're all proclaiming the gospel, but Peter now steps up and he begins preaching. He's going for it, right? And uh, somehow, and we don't know how, but, you know, either, either Peter's being translated to all these different people who have all these different languages, or, you know, uh, God supernaturally empowers the people all to be able to understand Peter. We don't know, but we know that everybody understands Peter. He's preaching, and so in verse 36, he kind of summarizes. He says, therefore, as he addresses these thousands of people, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, write out your tithe check to the Acts church and make sure that you... No, he, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The grace, the mercy of God. Repent. It's right here. Forgiveness and a right relationship with God, and he'll pour his Holy Spirit out upon you, and, and, and here you go. And verse 40, it says, With many other words, he testified, and he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Peter's taking it literally. Lord, you told me to go make disciples. I'm driving it like I stole it. I'm going to make some disciples here, right? (laughs) Verse 41, and then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about, how many? 3,000 souls were added to them. That's a good day. Okay? When you preach a go- uh, the gospel and you give an altar call and 3,000 people respond to the altar call, that is a good day. So what we've got here, we've got the birth of the church of Jesus. Starts with 12 called men, grows to about 120 disciples, and then like a rocket, it takes off. And I will tell you guys here at Reliance Church, just like the church of Acts, listen, we started, our discipleship process started with about 12 people in my living room. Okay, and, and that wasn't quite 12 years ago. May will be 12 years, all right? 12 of us in my living room, and then it grew to about 120 people, just like it did in Acts 1.15. But from there, the number of disciples have, have just grown here at the church. Now, we haven't grown nearly as dramatically as this first century church did. 3,000 people in one day, we've never experienced that. We've experienced a lot of people coming, We've, over the last six months, grown by 52%, but we've never seen this kind of growth. Like, that's incredible, 3,000 people in day one, right? Now, it didn't stop there. Skip down to Acts 2, verse 47, and notice with me, now we're skipping over a bunch of verses we're going to come back to, which talks about the process of how they did church, but in verse 47, it says that they're praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord did what? He added to the church daily those who were being saved. So he wasn't done. 3,000 people on day one was just the Lord warming up. Man, he hasn't even gotten started. He's adding daily to the church such as should be saved. And so you got the church at 3,000 people in verse 41. You've got them continuing to add in verse 47. But you skip ahead to Acts 4.4, and I'll put it on the screen for you for convenience. Here's what we read there. We read many of those who heard the word, because they just continue preaching the word. Many of those who heard the word believed... And the number of men came to be about 5,000. And notice he says the number of men. That's a gender-specific term in the Greek. 
okay? In other words, they're not counting the women. They're not counting the children when they say that the church has grown to 5,000 people. So we're talking a church, conservatively speaking, we're talking a church of over 10,000 people, right? Wow, right? That's a big, that's just an incredible work of God. Now, I've got a couple of observations I just want to throw out, okay? Here's my first observation. Church growth is not just biblical, it's God-ordained, okay? It's not just biblical, it's God-ordained. Notice with me back in, here in verse 2, verse, or in chapter 2, verse 47, who is it that added daily to the church? It's the Lord who added daily to the church. It's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, right? They didn't add daily to the church. It ain't these guys. Who is it? It is God who added daily to the church. And I want you to think about the heart of God, guys. Think about the heart of God. What did he say to Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful and multiply, right? You're like, oh, wait a minute. He was talking to people. He was talking about their kids. Well, aren't the kids here in the church God's kids? Like he wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to multiply. He demonstrates it in the birth of the first church, right? It's just absolutely incredible. I had somebody years ago say to me, well, you know, you got a big, if you got a big church, it doesn't necessarily mean anything because anybody can attract a crowd. And my response is, try it. <laughs> try it. See if you can attract a crowd. Now, I will concede that if I was serving free beer and we were showing football up on the screen, we could pack this place out, okay? If I, if, hey, free beer, football, we'd pack it out. And, and I will also concede that there are some churches that, you know, that maybe they're not offering free beer. I don't know. The church is doing some wacky things these days. But they're, maybe they're not offering free beer. But there are some churches that, you know, they're, they're offering some cotton candy, you know, trying to, to grow the people, you know. But listen, something that somebody told me years ago, I've taken it to heart. It's part of my DNA. It's part of the DNA here of our church. And I'm putting it on the screen for you because it's really important. Whatever you draw people with, you draw them to. Whatever you draw them with, you draw them to. So if I serve up free beer and football, what am I drawing people to? Getting drunk and watching football. That's what I'm drawing them to. So, so you don't do that. So what is it that we do? We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we do. I'm going to teach you the gospel. I'm going to teach you the Bible chapter by chapter. I'm going to teach it to you verse by verse. That's what I'm going to focus on doing. I'm going to sing about, and well, I won't sing because that's not edifying, but we will sing about and I will preach about the love and the grace and the mercy of God. We will proclaim the gospel message that there is hope in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm offering up and that's what I'm going to draw the people with because if I do that, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself, right? So I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified and I want to draw you to Jesus, right? And so that's what we focus on and I'm going to leave the adding daily to the church such as should be saved. I'm going to leave that to God. I didn't grow this church. I just preached the word, okay? God adds daily to the church as he sees fit. So my first observation is that church growth is biblical and that it's God-ordained. Don't doubt that for a second. Here's my second observation. It's that church growth is sometimes chaotic. It just is, right? Ask yourself this question. How did 12 apostles care for 3,000 people? Do you think it was a little chaotic for 12 guys to try to pull this off? I'm sure it was. How did they manage it when God added daily to the church beyond that? 
How did they manage it when God blew the church up to over 10,000 people? Well, I'll tell you, biblically, on the one hand, they actually did remarkably well. I like what David Guzik said in his commentary. He said, the early church was organized. They knew how many were saved. They met together at specific places and at specific times. Money and goods were collected and distributed to those in need. Sin was confronted and dealt with. And all these indicate at least some level of organization. Now, again, going back to those of you with children, you know that things operated differently when it was just you and your spouse. For you, when it was just you and your spouse, you know, you want to go out to eat. It's like, hey, you want to go out to eat? Yeah, let's go out to eat. And you go out to eat. You may, maybe the most you got to do is change your shirt or something, right? Now, you add kids to the mix, you need an act of Congress to go out to eat. It's like, oh, we got to get a babysitter. Do we have the car seat? Oh, she's puking again. Like, oh, what, what, you know, when do they got to go? Well, they're down for the nap. We can't go right now. Well, they got to be down tonight so we can go between 4.05 and 5.15, right? You need a little bit of organization. You need a little bit of structure, and that's just what you got to do to survive. Same thing in the church. You get a bunch of people together. You ain't a sports car anymore. You can just take a left when you want to take a left and take a right when you want to take a right. You have to start planning. You have to start thinking. You have to start systems and structures and, and all of this stuff. So on the one hand, they did a pretty remarkable job of getting their acting gear and doing that. But on the other hand, you know, it actually still was messy, and I'll prove this to you biblically. If you uh, turn ahead, and I'll ask you there, just turn a couple of books ahead to Acts chapter 6. And, and it's going to tell us that things got a little bit of messy as they grew. Acts chapter 6, notice verse 1, it says, Now in those days, what days are they talking about? Well, they're going to tell us right now. Those days when the number of disciples was multiplying. Okay, man, we started having kids and it got complicated. This is the idea. So the number of disciples was multiplying. And in those days, there arose a complaint, right? <laughs> well, it got complicated all of a sudden. Now somebody's complaining. And the complaints against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. What, what are they talking about? Well, they took care of the widows in the church. They organized. They were like, oh, well, who, who do we want to be as a church? Well, part of what we want to be as Christians, we want to take care of the widows. You know, so what are we going to do? Well, they, they need some help. They, they, they've lost some financial means or whatever. We're going to feed them. So they had a daily distribution of, of food. And so you've got the, the, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. What's going on with that? The Hebrews were Jews that were mostly from Judea who embraced Jewish culture. Okay, Hellenists, they were also Jews, but they were more inclined to embrace the Greek culture. They were, a lot of them had been part of the, the, the diaspora. They'd been, they'd been dispersed in different geographical areas. Now, for whatever reason, they're back in Jerusalem, but they picked up Greek culture. So you've got a whole group of people. They're, they're all identifying. They're all Jews. Uh, they're all born-again Christians in a church together. But some of, us come, some of them come from, you know, a, a, a Jewish culture background. Some of them come from more of a Greek culture background. And there were some underlying problems because Hebrews tended to regard Hellenists 
as unspiritual compromisers, and the Hellenists regarded the Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists, right? So, so there is an undercurrent in the church, okay? And let me just say that there's always a potential undercurrent in the church. Why? Because we come, whenever you mix races and you mix cultures and you mix certain prejudices together, then there is a potential undercurrent that exists in the church. Now, we are one in Christ, and that's the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he makes us one, and he brings us together from every nation, from every tongue, and from every tribe. And so there's not supposed to be cultural divide. There's not supposed to be racial, racial divide. There's not supposed to be any sort of prejudice that exists in the church. And that's the beauty of the church, that Jesus brings us together. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, some of us are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. And so when we're in the spirit of God and we come together, it's a beautiful thing. But there is always that potential undercurrent that if you're not acting or living according to the spirit... Or that you have some prejudice, it's like your marriage, you know, you know how you're supposed to treat your spouse, but you add some pressure to your day, and you don't always treat your spouse the way you should, right? At least my wife doesn't treat me the way that she should sometimes, I'll just say that. Um, I'm the guilty one. Anyway, so there's always that potential undercurrent for the worst side of you to come out. There just is. For example, if you come together here, and if you come from a small church culture, well, guess what? You're part of a large church culture now. And so what happens is, is that, and some of you, you were with us when we were 100 people. And you remember back to what our culture was when we were 100 people. And now you go, uh, 1,500 people, I don't like it so much. I, mean, I just don't, I don't, it just seems different. It just feels different. And so what happens is there's the potential for that culture clash, right? Um, and when, so when things are messy, when our flesh gets the best of us, sometimes we can think the worst about people. Sometimes we can begin to question motives. Sometimes we can begin to complain. By the way, you never notice in the book of Acts. They're 12, they're 120, they're 3,000, now they're 10,000, and never once do you read somebody saying, this church is too big. This church is too big. Why? Because God did it, and they knew that. God was adding daily to the church. But what's going on right now is they've got those pressures and they've got those, that friction. And so here you've got this church, well over 10,000 by Acts chapter 6 standards, and there's some, there's some clash. And there's some, hey, the, 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 the Hellenists now going, hey, you know what? The, the Hebrews aren't taking good care of us. And then there is that clash. So what do the disciples do? Notice, um, they, the 12, verse 2, Acts chapter 6, verse 2, they summoned the multitude of the disciples. Is that all 10,000? Is that just the leaders? I don't know. But they got a group of people together, multitude of them. And they said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And we got to prioritize what we're doing, especially now with 10,000 people. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Why Seven. Well, it's the daily distribution of bread. There's seven days in a week. My speculation is it's one guy to lead up each day of the week. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I think. But it's seven men. 
And hey, they got to be wise. They got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They got to have a good reputation. Why good reputation? Well, because there are already people going, hey, you know, the, the, the Hebrews aren't taking good care of us. We think their motives are sketchy. So hey, let's solve it this way. <clears throat> We're going to continue our priority of the ministry, keeping, continuing the ministry of prayer and the word. And verse 5, the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose, and I'm not going to go through the list, but as you read these names, what you realize, there's a lot of Greek names in here. And, and it says, uh, what happened? They set these guys before the apostles, they prayed, they laid hands on them, they commissioned them to this, verse 7, and then the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, beyond 10,000, like, oh my gosh, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so what they did is they took these guys, they go, hey, we got a culture clash, so let's, let's get these guys in place, and let's make sure that the Hellenists are represented in the leaders of, of particular days, and, and we're, gonna, we're just going to cut off every certain area there. I don't know if truly discrimination was happening, but they said we're going to handle it in such a way that there can't even be an allegation of discrimination. But here's the point, and I want you to get this. The church in Jerusalem was messy, okay? Sometimes we get this idea and we go, you know what? My church is messy, but the church in the book of Acts, it was perfect. No, it wasn't. It was messy. As a matter of fact, they weren't the only ones having issues, right? The church in, in Jerusalem, the church in Acts... They weren't perfect. They didn't have perfect systems. They had discipline issues. If you read Acts chapter 5, they had discipline issues. If you read 1 Corinthians 16, you realize they had financial issues. But as you continue reading through the New Testament, what you'll see is that the church of Galatia had doctrinal messes. You see that the church in Corinth had a moral mess going on with certain people. They had interpersonal conflict. You look at the church of Philippi, they had unity issues that Paul had to talk about. Listen, Every church has an issue. And it's been said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you're going to mess it up. Right? <laughs> it's just the truth. Every church is messy. I'm sorry, they are. You know, I planted this church uh, after 15 years of being at the other church that I planted. We had messy issues there too. And God blew that church up as well. 6,500 people from four people in my living room. God adds to the church. There's messes there. And that's just part of the program. That's just what you go through. And so we're in good company because every church has a lot of chaos to contend with. And and I take heart reading some of what the Apostle Paul has to say. Because we know the Apostle Paul, and we're going to look at this at the end of our message today, but he goes out and plants more churches, and does such a great work, just this incredible work, and, and he carried a lot of stress. And some people, you know, some, so I was having a conversation with a brother, he's like, man, you know, you, you've got a lot of stress, and you should take some time off. And, and I go, look, I can take time off when I'm dead, there's just work to be done, you know? And I can take a vacation here or there or whatever, I'm not gonna, I don't, need, I don't wanna take time off, life is short, people are going to hell, like there's work to be done, and, and, and the fact that you might see me have stress from time to time, I'm actually in good company. Listen to Paul. He's talking to the Corinthians. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says to them, I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, and I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray, and I do not burn with anger? There's always something, man. 
There's just always something. Now, we don't complain because this, I mean, Peter, he's talking, I think it's in 1 Peter, and he's basically talking to Christians who are being persecuted. And I'll paraphrase, but he basically says, look, uh, you know, don't, don't be shocked that you're going through this like some strange thing has happened to you. This is just what happens when you step out to serve the Lord. It's kind of like that far side cartoon. You got two deer standing there. One's got that big bullseye on his belly. And his buddy goes, that's a bummer of a birthmark, Hal. You know? And, and the moment you step out and say, I'm going to serve Jesus, you got a big bullseye. The enemy's going to attack and there's just stuff. It just happens. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying this is... It's, it's, it's all one glorious work of God. He adds daily to the church such as should be saved. It's a messy work. We do the best we can. And, and we just trust the Lord and, and see what, what we can do. Now, number two, how the Bible describes the practice of the church. Let me spend a couple of minutes here, okay? What is the practice of the church supposed to be? Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 42 through 47, These are our model verses. We modeled our church after these verses. Here's what it says. What did they do? 3,000 people are added to them. What do we do? Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together They had all things in common. They sold their goods and possessions and divided them all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added the church such as daily to the church such as should be saved. I want you to notice that Luke details four practices that the church engaged in. Four practices that they engaged in. Number one, the apostles' doctrine. Number two, fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, prayer. I want to quickly go through this, just very quickly. The first practice, the apostles' doctrine. What is this? It's the teaching and preaching of the word of God. This is our number one value at this church. We articulate it this way. We trust God's word as the only foundation for truth and our only hope for change. Because at Reliance Church, we value the word of God. Okay? Paul told Timothy this. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Get this, there's the key. All scripture, your whole Bible, all 66 books of it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine. That's what's right. It is profitable, he says, for reproof. That's what's not right. He says it's profitable for correction. That's how to get right. And he says it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. That's how to stay right. And that's what the word of God does. It does those things. That, here's why, verse 17, the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's why this is so important. Proverbs 14, 12, Proverbs 16, 25, they both say this, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And if we go according to our flesh, if we go according to, our, to what seems right to us, to those who might say, well, wow, the church is too big. Well, okay, well, what, do, what do you want? What's the alternative? That we never grow? That, that we stay at a particular size that you like? 
That's not biblical. It's not biblical. Because God's prerogative is the one, he's the one who decides how big he wants to grow it. And you go, well, I don't like this. I'm going to move to a smaller church. What are you going to do when God grows that one up? You know, or, or are you going to let your flesh dictate and you go, I just want it to be us four and no more. That's a click. That's not church. Okay? We need to take a walk with that. So we have to orient ourselves biblically and say, what is it, what has God designed the church to be and to do? Listen, we're in this together, right? That's our second practice, fellowship. Um, the word in the Greek is koinonia. It occurs over 20 times in the Bible. And the idea is that we share things in common. The idea is that we have community together. This is a key aspect of the Christian life. And believers in Jesus, we are to gather together in love. We're to gather together in faith. We are to gather together in encouragement. The writer of Hebrews says this, let us consider one another. That word consider, it means that I'm going to look intently at your life and you're going to look intently at my life. Not to judge, not to throw stones, but to spur each other on and to make sure we're both on the right track because we got blind spots in our lives. We need each other, right? And so he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then he adds this, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Why would he add that? Because when you get in a relationship where somebody's considering your life and you are considering their life and somebody actually loves you enough to tell you, hey, because I love you, I'm going to tell you something hard right now because I'm seeing something in your life that's a little difficult. And our tendency in the flesh when somebody does that is to say, how dare you, right? I'm leaving. I was looking for a church when I found this one. I'm going somewhere else, you know? And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 consider each other and don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. We are in this together. goes back to my preamble, right? The church, it's not an organization. It's people. It's family. And we got to be family to one another. Paul said this to the, to the Philippians, and I want you to remember, the Philippians were struggling with unity. And here's what he said to them. He said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, that word participation is the word koinonia, Fellowship. If there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is the fellowship God's called us to. The third practice, breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. This is just the partaking of communion. We do this every week as a church. We partake of the bread. We partake of the cup. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' body broken for us. The cup is a symbol of his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus said we're supposed to do this often in remembrance of him because it helps us orient our life to, hey, it's not about a religion of do good, try harder. What we have is a relationship with a God who loves us so much that he gave his son to die on the cross. And Jesus thought it well enough that we should be reminded of this regularly. And so we do it once a week. And then the fourth practice, Acts 2, 42 through 47 talks about, is prayer. And I don't have a lot of time to spend on this. I did a whole series on this in our value series. I just want you to remember, prayer is important. Jesus prayed a lot, so much that his, his disciples begged him to teach them to pray. The church was birthed in prayer. is a very critical thing. Um, but I want, you to, to, I want to ask you, what happened as the church steadfastly did these four things. 
what happened? God was pleased to add to it. That's what happened. We don't read that Peter added daily to the church, that John added daily to the church, that, that, that any of the other guys added daily to the church. James didn't do it. None of the other guys did it. God added daily. God saw fit to add daily to that church. Why? Because God said, that's a place where I can send my kids to grow and to be nurtured. See, where do you send your kids? You know, somebody, your kids want to go somewhere. What do you want to know? Where am I sending you to? Who's going to be there? How are you going to be cared for? Right? You want, a good parent wants to know those things. God added daily to this church because they continued doing those things. Well, thirdly and finally, this is your point of application, and I'm not going to spend long here, but I want you to write this down and take note how the Bible says that we, the members, are supposed to participate in the church. Okay? How are we supposed to participate in the church? Really quickly, look at verse 42. What's it say? It says, they continued steadfastly in all the things we've just talked about. They continued steadfastly. Now, steadfastly, that word in the Greek, it's prokartereo. Here's what it means. I'll put it on the screen for you. It means to adhere. It means to be devoted to. It means to continue. It means to persevere. It means to endure. It means to not faint. It means to show yourself courageous. Guys, it means to be in constant readiness. And that's what they did. They continued. And the key word here, and I I hope you circle it in your Bible, it's they. They continued. Who's the they? Yes, the apostles were steadfast. Yes, they continued. Yes, the appointed leaders were steadfast. They continued. They were devoted. They were persevering. They were enduring. But they also and chiefly means that they, everyone, and the congregation, all 10,000 plus, they continued in these disciplines. And so I want to ask you, are you continuing in these disciplines? And I want you to notice logistically how they continued in these disciplines. How were they steadfast? How did they continue being steadfast? Notice in verse 46. What did they do? They continued daily with one accord in the temple, right? And breaking bread from house to house. So you have large group assemblies and you got small group assemblies. And so how do we continue? We continue in a large group assembly. We come together on the weekend, our weekend services. If you're going, oh man, the church is too big, come to Saturday night. There's 180 of us on Saturday night. Okay, you want a smaller crowd? Come on Saturday night, all right? We continue together in the larger assemblies. But you know what? We also continue together in our community groups. We got dozens of them, right? And the issue is, is that you have to make the decision that you're going to continue in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Let me give you a math problem right now, okay? 10,000 people, 12 disciples. If a disciple was going to be the one taking them through a home Bible study, how many Bible studies would, a home, would, would one disciple have to be in charge of for 10,000 people? It's 41 Bible studies. On average, 20 people in a Bible study. They're never going to be able to do it. And so, so we know mathematically the apostles weren't teaching all the home fellowships and, our, and, and all of our pastors don't teach home fellowships. You go, oh, you know, I'll go to a home fellowship PT. Which one do you teach? I, I teach Saturday night and I teach Sunday. That's what I do. Because y'all are killing me. You know, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
But we got great people who God has raised up. They're teaching home Bible studies. They're teaching these community groups. Then get plugged into a midweek group. It's got to be a choice that we make, guys. That's the point. Like our fellowship, our community, our being one body, it's not about you sitting back going, well, you don't have a program for me. There's too many people here. No. It's about you making the decision, I'm going to get engaged in community. Because I guarantee you, Peter didn't know every member of the church. Neither did John, neither did James, neither did any of the apostles. It's just too many. It's mathematical impossibility. We got to know each other. That's how it goes down, guys. And that's what God built, okay? God built that. So big groups and small groups, this is not an either-or equation. It's both and. It's both and. And the only way we're going to achieve Christian community and Christian maturity is by each one of us steadfastly pursuing it together. Now, I promised I was going to tell you where we're going. And I'll just give you a teaser, okay? Acts chapter 13. I will be 30 seconds on this and we're done, okay? Acts chapter 13. Turn there. Um, God's growing the church. 10,000 people. He continues to add people. They're growing. They got people coming out their ears. And what's happening is they're discipling, they're training up, they're sending people out. Other churches are being planted. It's a beautiful thing. You get to Acts 13, and it tells us about the church that was in Antioch. And it tells us here, now in the church, Acts chapter 13, verse 1, that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, that's some pretty incredible talent that is, that is serving in terms of their leadership there, right? And as they ministered to the, Lord's and, to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So you got a church here that's doing what a church should do. They're getting together, they're praying, they're seeking the Holy Spirit. God's brought some incredible leaders to the church. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shows up in their prayer meeting and says, uh, Hey, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. Now, I got to be honest with you. I put myself in the shoes of the, ch- of the pastor of the Church of Antioch for a brief second. I'm bumming. I'm going, Lord, you just took my two best guys. Like, what are you doing? And God would say, I'm building my church. And I want to tell you, we're moving into a really exciting time as a church. We're sending out missionaries. And, and we're planting some churches that are coming up. And, and we're going to be sharing that with you in the weeks to come. We're really excited about what God is doing. And, and we as a body, what do we do? We need to be faithful. We just need to be faithful. We need to continue steadfastly. We need to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We need to be determined to say, you know what? I need to be in Christian community. And I can't say, hey, this church is too big because you know what? You don't read it once in the book of Acts. It's God's prerogative how, how big he wants to build his church. My job is to be faithful there and to put some roots down and to grow. Amen? Hey, by the way, Paul says that the Bible sent out, uh, hey, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. You're a Christian today because they were sent out. Paul went out and planted churches in Asia Minor and throughout Europe, and we're Christians today because of the work that Paul did. Take a walk with that. It's an amazing thing to consider what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and through you.